Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our coverage continues now with Laura Coates. Laura Coates, did you see, I know you're a big inventing Anna fan. Did you see the interview with... uh, Anna Delvey, a.k.a. Anna Sorokin. Oh, I did. I look forward to anything that is reality TV based. And I can think of somebody having a disguise. I love the inventing Anna. I love the interview because, you know, most people can't speak to her. Even the shows and series that people have, there are drawings of her. There are drawings from her in the in jail. Now this is actually right in the thick of things. It was a great interview. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if you picked up. I'm not really sure I'm buying what she's selling. But, but uh, we'll see. I, I think the phrase is, you weren't picking up what was being put down. That's the, that was the Philly in you. I have to we'll tell see, you I love we'll it. See, we'll see. She, you know, she has a time. She has a chance now to, to do her thing. Let's see. Let's see what she does. Let's see what she does. And I think we'll probably see another show out of it. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there was another angle to pursue. Maybe that's the next one. Thanks so much. Great show, as Good always. Luck. Thanks. Good evening, everyone. Look, this is CNN Tonight. I'm Laura Coates. And don't worry, Allison is just off tonight. We'll see her again soon. But we are going to keep the conversation going with our panelists from all across the political spectrum. And let me just say, this is a day when you think about all the things that are coming in the news cycle, all of the things that we're talking about. We've got the January 6th hearings tomorrow. We've got conversations around the midterm elections coming up. We know that after a day full of news, we want to talk about what's happened. We're going to have those conversations here, not just the sound bites, but let it breathe a little bit. And I want to first play this for you because this happened today and it's a major story. The conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones, he was reacting in real time to a jury that awarded nearly a billion dollars. And yes, you heard the letter B, a billion dollars to Sandy Hook families and a first responder for his lies about the massacre that killed 20 children, six adults, nearly a decade ago. The 7 million, 20 million, 50 million, 80 million, 100 million, blah, blah. You get a million, you get 100 million, you get a 50 million. Do these people actually think they're getting any money? First of all, how dare you use Oprah to have that moment? That's a very sacred moment, first of all, the whole you get a car scene, to have it used in that way. And then it tells you again, right, how flippant it is. Do these people think they're getting any money? I wonder if he's aware that the, these people he's talking about are the parents and families and loved ones of children who were killed in their own school. I mean, just think about that. Talk about the ick factor. Talk about how it's stomach turning and lessons learned. And by the way, we're asking you to contribute today. And I want to hear from you in our hashtag CNN sound off about whether you think that that awarding of that damage amount by the jury is going to actually change this trafficking in lies. If that's the real time, if that's what happens next, it's going to be a heck of a week. It turns out the price of lies, though, is nearly a billion dollars. But this is the era of misinformation. So will it stop the lies? It didn't stop him tonight talking about it and making fun. We also got a big conversation ahead. I mean, the midterms, I don't know if you've heard about it, but there's a big thing It's coming less than a month away. And 
A big issue today is candidates and their health. And let's go to Pennsylvania because John Fetterman, who is the Democratic Senate nominee in Pennsylvania, he's recovering, as you know, from a near fatal stroke that happened in May. And he is now using closed captioning technology to help him understand what he is hearing. And he says that his speech is getting bigger, better, excuse me. But the thing is, speaking of big talk, there's a lot of people who are criticizing and having a lot of things to say about how this may all play out. Some justified, some not. We'll get that taken in a moment. But he's hardly the first politician to actually have health problems, right? I mean, we're all old and young enough to remember that this is an issue not just for those running, but how about incumbents? And I wonder, does it really affect his fitness for office to the voters? And I wonder what matters to the voters and what doesn't. And look, we're now just a few hours away from what is expected to be the final January 6th committee hearing before the midterms. They didn't say the last one, but before the midterms. And sources are telling CNN that they're going to have some never-before-seen videos and some testimony, not just about what happened at the Capitol that day, but about the very clear and present danger to democracy even now. I mean, they keep talking about what's on the ballot. Democracy, some say, is directly on it as well. There's actually a committee member on that same committee telling CNN that some of the new material is, quote, well, pretty surprising. I don't know if that's going to be the mic drop moment people are looking for. That's pretty surprising. But I want to bring in some smart folks who always have their own version of the mic drop. This is Nia Malika Henderson, and she's often confused as my doppelganger oh, twin. And I'm always honored. So we're sitting right next to each other to make sure. We are different people. Yeah, yes. we, are di- we are different people. There was a time yes. once that under my name it said Nia Malika yeah. under my face. Nia Malika Henderson. And I was like, And there yes. there have been occasions when people who I've met on the street have called me Laura. So... There you go. Yeah. Do I owe them money? Or they just... Uh, uh, you know, you pay I, 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 I took right. care of you. Don't well, worry about it. Also confused for Laura Coates is David Axelrod no, <laughs> and the, Scott the Jennings. Jennings and I are often being confused <laughs> for each other. It happens all the time. It really does. Gentlemen, yes. you know what's being confused for a lot of things? Maybe the idea of what the role of the Supreme Court is. And I, I know the lawyer in me wants to talk about the Supreme Court and, and the law, but really it's, it's a political conversation that's happening all over this country about whether they are apolitical. I mean, they haven't done many favors themselves, but there are many moments now when democracy is on the ballot. Are they on the ballot in a way? Well, certainly the the decision, the Dobbs decision is on the ballot. It's central to this campaign. So that has put the Supreme Court uh, on the ballot. But they're, they're, as you know, they're considering all kinds of issues in real time that have profound impacts or will have profound impacts on the country. And Yes, uh, I think that if, if co- there are conservative justices who are added to the Supreme Court, if they operate with a consistent philosophy, uh, then you can say, well, this is their interpretation of the Constitution. Mm. If they're inconsistent uh, in order to achieve political goals, then they open this, themselves up to criticism. And if they are out there saying things that seem overtly political, Justice Alito being an example of someone who does that from Mm. time to time, you invite the kind of criticism that they're getting. 
Well, I'm going to turn to my good friend Scott Jennings for a second because maybe you don't realize that he has a pet pig. And there's a re- <laughs> I'm bringing it up. I'm, it's true, right? I'm, I'm yeah. bringing it up. I'm bringing it up because there is, is it actually a pot belly pig. Is it a It's a Julian mini pig. He bit me this week, by the way. Just FYI. Well, he should know. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. He was literally biting the hand that was trying to feed him. Well, what's the pig's name again? Everyone knows. Harry Plopper. This is, <laughs> this, is, this is where we are right now in life. The reason I bring up pigs, though. One of the great minds in the Republican Party. Yes, yes. Wow, there you go. Well, here's why I bring it up. The Supreme Court actually has a case that's about pigs. I saw it keeps popping up in my Twitter feed. I see Let pictures see. of it. Do you know what it's about? No. <laughs> He's like, sweat, sweat, sweat. Here's this case. It doesn't affect Harry Plopper. It doesn't affect it. I don't know. I it mean, it, it, it could. It could. I, I want to talk about it in a second. But the, the issue with that case, why it's so interesting, and why I think it's about politics and why a part yeah. of this conversation comes yeah. to January 6th, is so California has a law that says they will not allow export or import of pig products that are not humanely raised pigs. Mm. The Supreme Court's looking at this issue to figure out, can California dictate how other states are treating and also conducting their own laws. It has ramifications, though, with issues surrounding abortion. Yeah. With issues, you know, immediately, issues yes. surrounding transgender, mm-hmm. issues surrounding a whole host of issues of, wait, do you get to dictate what other states are able to do, even yeah. tr- climate change, everything right. else? All these things combined, it's like one of these cases that, much like other things, is masquerading as one issue, but it's about mm-hmm. so much more. This idea of states being able to impact each other reminds me of right after the election when you had a number of states essentially trying to uh, dictate other states' election laws. You know, mm-hmm. you had a number of attorneys general that filed suit, to, uh, uh, I guess, um, in opposition to Pennsylvania's election laws. And I think the Supreme Court decided not to take it up. And uh, and, and the idea against it, of course, was that you can't have one state. So there's a lot of interesting federalism uh, issues there, I would say. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the reason I bring it up and the idea of the masquerading, and it's, it appears to be one thing, but mm. people are believing it to be another ramifications it really does tie in my mind to a lot of what's happening with the committee hearings, with conversations about democracy more broadly. The idea of what is this, what is the symbolism at stake? What's happening here and what action of one will have an impact on others? Do you see it? With, with the January 6th committee, yeah. what happened on January 6th? Listen, I think the fact that we've had this January 6th uh, committee hearings will have maybe the final one uh, tomorrow. So important because so much of American history has often been uh, erased, sort of rewritten, and mm. not adequately uh, aired. So we'll see uh, what happens tomorrow. The committee is going to try to uh, suggest basically that Donald Trump planned the whole thing in terms of wanting to overthrow their election, that he approved of the violence, liked the violence, wanted to go up to the Capitol. uh, And the Secret Service, of course, stopped him. Um, So we'll see what what ends up happening, how the public has received it over the last uh, few months and what they come up with as a sort of closing argument. In your mind, does the public still care? Well, I think think that's a really good question, even around Trump. There's a superseding scandal mm-hmm. uh, since the, since the last time the committee had its its hearings around mm-hmm. the documents, and so we've moved on. And known as Mar-a-Lago, right? Mar- <laughs> no, no, known as Mar-a-Lago. But to your to your larger point, uh, the thing that I've always said about Donald Trump. I mean, I have you know Scott and I disagree on some things, but. Uh, Democracy relies on a common sort of sense that there are rules and laws and norms and institutions mm. that we all 
uh, can rely on and that we all uh, should uh, believe in and that we should support and strengthen, challenge when they're wrong or challenge when they're flawed. But, but, but that's so fundamental to democracy. The thing about January 6th, was, it reflected the fact that we've seen again and again with Trump, that he doesn't believe in rules and laws and norms and institutions. And he is someone who has uh, ripped them down uh, to suit his own purposes. And it goes, I I get get your connection to the court, because if people lose faith in all the institutions of our democracy, uh, we we are in a bad place. But it also relies on the people who we entrust in those positions uh, to to act in good faith and have their own high regard for those institutions. And so, you know, he did not, and we've paid a big price for that. And, yeah, and, and listen, I think a lot of members of his party, I think there was a moment there where people felt like maybe Republicans would do the right thing. Uh, maybe they would uh, impeach him a, a second time and really hold him accountable uh, for his complicity in what happened in January 6th. But they decided, not only decided not to hold him accountable, many Republicans Republicans uh, believe the big lie or propagating the big lie now are running in different states uh, to sort of advance uh, some of his conspiracy theories around voting. Well, you know, tomorrow we're going to hear more and new testimony, new things. We're going to pick this up after a quick break. But here's the thing. We're going to see some of who those people that have been entrusted in the government, cabinet members and others who might be called, who might be a part of it. We're going to pick it back up. There's a lot more to say about this and just the broader notion of where things are right now. I mean, if the January 6th committee is anything, it's about a conversation about the republic, if you can keep it. We're going to talk about it in just a moment. We're back with our panel and joining is Nick Ackerman as well. And, you know, we're thinking about all these issues. We were talking more broadly, taking a step back. Um, You know, the, the committee hearing is happening tomorrow, and they have had a couple months off, as we know, whether they were working or not. We know they were working. Here's actually a screenshot of the people who have actually they've spoken with since the last time we heard from this committee several months ago. I remember, they rescheduled the hearing because of Hurricane Ian. What sticks out in my mind on this list and this screen is Ginny Thomas. She is the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice who just so happens, David, to have the case to decide about these, in some respect, the Mar-a-Lago documents. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just find that pretty stunning. When you look at the approval ratings of this Supreme Court in broad terms, their approval rating, gentlemen, is the lowest that it's been since they began tracking, 40%, since 2000. Nick, does that not stun you a little bit to think that that she is one of the people... And it doesn't bode well for confidence in the Supreme Court, does it? No, of course not. I mean, the idea that she was actually involved in talking to legislators in key states, trying to get them to switch the vote to Donald Trump. And still believes that the election was stolen. You're right. And still believes that, which is really amazing. But your point is a, a good one, which is, should Justice Thomas be ruling on any issue uh, related to this case or any cases involving mm-hmm. Donald Trump, no, given, given, given that? Or is the argument that she's an independent person, she's his spouse, that shouldn't be held on his account? Yeah, well, look, I mean, <clears throat> she's not on the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court. There's never been one whisper of impropriety on the part of Clarence Thomas. There's been a decades-long attempt to smear Clarence Thomas and to uh, 
degrade him over time, and, and this is a continuation of that. Regarding the approval ratings of the Supreme Court, they're, they're not supposed to be reading polls. They're supposed to be reading the Constitution and the laws and making decisions therein. You do not want this branch of government worried about its approval rating. You want them only worried about the law and doing the job that they were put on that court to do. And the idea, but, and the idea but, that they can't function unless they're waking up every day and checking a poll, that's, that's mob I, justice. I don't think they're that's like teenagers rule. checking their Twitter feed. I, I, when, I, when I talk about the idea of the approval rating for the Supreme Court, and I, I agree, they're not supposed to be ruling to say, to somebody like me, it's not Sally Fields getting an award. The idea is whether or not you can operate if the premise of precedent means it's only as good as people want to follow it. It's only as much as I want to respect the Supreme Court. If people look at it and say, kind of forget about it, that's not going to bode well for the confidence in this Supreme Court. Well, that's what Joe Biden does. What the Supreme Court does. <laughs> Wait, what does Joe Biden do? What do you that's saying? what Joe, Joe Biden frequently ignores. Uh, and, and just this week was sort of calling them a more, what do you call them, a political panel or something no, as opposed to advocacy. advocacy. I mean, he is, he is driving this national conversation that would lead people to believe that these folks are more partisan than judicial. And that's wrong. It's wrong. And it's whining from a well, political party that's well, not getting well, that, that is absolutely well. not true. Because look at Roe versus Wade. These people, the people that were appointed by Donald Trump, were put on for one reason and one reason only. There was a litmus test. Were they going to overrule Roe versus Wade? When you start looking at these justices they put in, they also put them in in most unusual circumstances. Um, the, yeah. Amy Conan Barrett went in like just a few days before the election. Uh, the other position with Kavanaugh was held off until the election uh, was over. I mean, a whole year Obama was not be able to was not able to yeah. appoint somebody. Uh-huh. I mean, all of that leads. It, it's not so much the polls that that Scott's talking about. It's really the court and its moral authority. Well, and yeah, once no, you no. start getting away from acting like a court and start basically giving what people perceive as political pronouncements, that's when you get into trouble. And yeah. I mean, the, Layla, you know, I, I don't want to. I, I want to raise two points, and I want to be too provocative with. <laughs> with, with my friend here, but you know, part of the cynicism and part of the polarization and part of the sense of all of this stem from the fact that President Obama appointed Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. He was never even allowed a hearing. He was never even given an opportunity to appear before the Senate because Senator McConnell held up the nomination for the better part of a year. President Trump nominates Amy Coney Barrett, and she goes through the uh, the speed lane. Uh, and in a matter of weeks, she's on the Supreme Court. Uh, that makes people cynical. When, when justices appear before the Senate and say Roe versus Wade is settled law, now they didn't say Doug Jones was on my podcast, uh, the Axe Files podcast this week, and he said, I think people heard what they wanted to hear. Just because they said it was settled law didn't mean that they, didn't, they weren't going to overturn it. But the implication certainly was it's settled law, so we're not going to overturn it. Those kinds of things make people cynical. And when you say they're there to, to, to just rule on the law and this is not a political process, then don't act in political ways. Yeah, well, it's only, but you only think it's political because it didn't come out the way you wanted. No, that's it. not. I mean, I mean, the court, not, the court, the court is not static. It changes. People come on. People you know, go off. And today, it's a conservative court. It hasn't always you, you been. You know something? Uh, there were, that precedent stood for fifty years. Roe versus Wade. Uh, that it, that means something. 
that has become part of the fabric of our understanding of, of, of the law on this issue. Uh, settled law means something. It's not just a phrase. It means something. So there are societal implications to these decisions. And, uh, you know, and I think that was what people were reacting yeah, to. In the me, 1930s, you, 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 I'm not saying you were right. <laughs> I was just there. No, I was just But you're a student of history. You're a student of history. You're a student of history. But you remember that. that you remember the 30s, the court in the 30s that yes. basically rejected all the elements of the New, New Deal, deal. Yeah. until 1938 when President Roosevelt Tried threatened court, court. court packing. Right. And then one of the justices uh, changed, changed his his position, and part of it was that there was clear national consensus on some of these uh, issues. So yes, there, you know, should justices be sensitive to the environment around them and the the, the 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 era in which they're ruling, and the you know, yes, I think the answer is yes. And if you don't, uh, I think you also invite. Uh, the kinds of things that the kinds of numbers that we see. Well, even worse, though. I mean, the way the system is set up now, the incentive, this is for both parties. The incentive is to appoint the youngest possible person you can for political reasons to keep them in there for as long as you can, as opposed to going after people that, you know, have stature that are something other than circuit court judges. So you I want mean, term limits? Well, that's one thing I'd want. But Earl Warren, for example, mm. I mean, no one's thinking about appointing a you know, governor to the Supreme Court, Arthur Goldberg, who was somebody who was a seasoned labor lawyer who, I mean, the, the, the pillars of the bar are not being considered for appointment to the Supreme Court. And that is a problem on both sides. Well, you know what? I want to take it to a different side, kind of the third wall. I want to hear from social media as well. Everyone can stick around. We're going to have this conversation. But I want to hear from what you have to say. What is your take? What's your opinion of the Supreme Court right now? Use the hashtag CNN sound off and anything else on your mind tonight. I mean, within reason. And if it's from Sally Field, I do love you. And I love that award acceptance (laughs) speech. I was just using it as a moment here. Everyone will be back in a moment. Convicted con artist Anna Sorkin is out of prison and speaking to Jake Tapper from House Arrest. I feel like I'm getting a second chance to um, fix my mistakes. Yeah, and I'm so happy ICE agreed to release me, even if it's just House Arrest. House Arrest and you have this ankle monitor here. I do. Is that annoying? No, um, I'm getting used to it. They tighten it up a little bit, uh, so it's not dangling as it used to. Are you allowed to leave the apartment at all? No. Not at all? No. Well, I'm supposed to check in with my um, criminal parole and my ICE um, officers, but otherwise, no. And do you have any idea how long you're going to be in house arrest? No, not yet. We're, like, figuring it out now. Well, look, I'm joined by someone who knows a thing or two about house arrest. It's former Trump attorney Michael Cohen. He's out with a brand new book. It's called Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the United States Department of Justice Against His Critics. And he's also the host of the podcast, Mea Culpa. Michael Cohen, I'm glad that you're here. First, you know, when you look at that and you think about house arrest, people are often wondering what that experience was like for you at a time when everyone was talking around the issue. Donald Trump was still very much the news all the time. His narrative was out there. Yours was not as much in the same way. What was that like for you? So house arrest is quite difficult. It's you know, depending upon the weather, it's a beautiful day. You want to go out for a walk. You can't, um, you know. I'll, Better than prison. Well, that, yes, for sure, because you get to be with your family. But it's still difficult. 
like in prison, you have to make sure that you, you know, time manage yourself. Very, very important. And during my house um, arrest, my home confinement, which is what they call it, I actually wrote the book. Mm. And in this book, what I find so interesting about it is when you talk about Donald Trump weaponizing the Department of Justice against his critics, um, you know, the January 6th committee, in some respects, is about weaponizing democracy, the thought is, against those who sought and dared to say he didn't win and trying to make sure people were aware and had the, or illuminated the fact that he was, did not win the election. When you're watching these committee hearings and you're watching them try to tie together Donald Trump to the different actors, to the different statements, even in the D.C. courts, the Oath Keepers, what's going through your mind? Are you thinking Teflon Don? No, I'm actually thinking back to the Mueller investigation mm. and I'm drawing a comparison to the two of them. The Mueller report should have been turned over to the Justice Department. They should have brought the indictments back then and put an end to all of this. It would not be necessary for the country to be going through it again. What did they, in, they spoke to what, a thousand people? There's tens of thousands of hours of information, of testimony, of documents that they have in their possession. The problem that we have going right now is that every single day, Captain Chaos throws something new out there. And the media starts chasing. And I talk about this in the book. The media chases the story. And everybody throws their hands up and say, oh, he's guilty. He's guilty. We have to get him on this. We have to get him on this. Why? Why? We already know how many illegal acts that the man has committed. So if you can't get him on this one because it's potentially more difficult, let's go the Al Capone theory. You can't get him for murder, extortion, racketeering. I'm talking about Al Capone, yeah. not Trump. Let's get him for tax evasion. It's a, it's a no-brainer. Just but, do but, something but no, to get him out of the game. I hear you on the no-brainer, but obviously, you know, we're both attorneys. The idea of thinking about how you meet your burden and how you would prove that. Because what you're saying is exactly the talking point and retort that many of his supporters will say, including himself, which is, okay, so just throw anything against the wall and have a kind of fishing expedition. I don't think that's what's happening, but have a fishing expedition and something will stick. Doesn't that just fuel the narrative that everyone's out to get them and there's no, there's no credibility? It does, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is instead of going after all the stuff he's throwing against the wall, because every day he does something new, right? January 6th, let's go to the Mar-a-Lardo documents. Let's go to you know everything else that the guy does. Let's stop and let's not concentrate on all of that. Let's just go for the low-hanging fruit because the guy will fight you tooth and nail on everything. Let's not forget, in order for the district attorney and the AG to get their documents, what did they end up having to do? They had to bring a lawsuit. And of course, he lost Trump. Uh, so they appealed and he lost the appeal. And then he tried to take it to the Supreme Court. All that he does is delay, delay, delay. And the country can't afford to allow Donald to continue to delay it because his goal is to weaponize the Justice Department, as he did before, as he did with me. But speaking, just- speaking of you, though, and that, I found that really interesting in the book in particular, because you actually, you, you fear for your safety sure. if Trump is elected again. Tell me why. Well, it's not just me. I fear for the safety of many people. He has an enemies list that's probably a mile long. You, for all you know, because you've spoken negatively about him, you could be on that list as well. He doesn't care about anyone. But what's the consequence of that list? The consequence? If, in fact, he becomes 
president again. When I, you've heard me say this a million times. I don't believe he's even running. But what about the Trump 2.0? Somebody that mm. is indebted to Trump. Then what happens? Every single person is in jeopardy. And Donald doesn't care. He's, I'm not the one that's saying it. He said it. He can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. He's not joking. Donald Trump has no sense of humor. He's not joking. He really believes that he can do anything that he wants. He believes that he's the king, not the president of the United States. He believed he was king and that he can do anything based on executive privilege. When you talk about weaponizing the Department of Justice is the equivalent of above the law, right? The idea of using it's obviously executive branch it's under the umbrella of the presidency. He's not the president any longer. But does that mean that, I mean, you're... you're well, tell that anger. to the folks at Mar-a-Lago who were running around calling him Mr. President. He legitimately believes. Is that what happened still? Yes, they, they, yes, they still call him Mr. President. Not out of respect for having been, but as in they think he still is. Many of them. I wonder what you make of the Mar- of Mar-a-Lago case more broadly. You've been there. You spent a great deal of time down there. You would understand the ins and outs and what's going on. Is there any conceivable way that you think that there would have been classified documents in that area, in the estate, and he was unaware? No. First of all, we know, and we saw photos of the pallets of boxes of documents, and they have already stated that Donald told them which boxes to take. I mean, that's already been reported, not obviously by me, but by Mm. the press. Assuming, of course, that it's true and that they spoke to the individual, and I suspect that they probably did, but he knew everything. Nothing left the White House unless Donald said so. Nothing was put into Mar-a-Lago unless Donald said so. Nothing ever occurred, whether it was the Trump Organization or in the White House, without Donald Trump's explicit direction with his knowledge. You know, we do have some new reporting out. I mean, thinking about that there are some key pieces about the Mar-a-Lago document, the surveillance camera, whatever footage is there. Everything is not connected through the reporting fully in the sense that we don't know exactly what the DOJ is doing with the information. But the idea, in line with you talking about, who's pulling the strings and who would have given directives is really interesting to think about. Here, this book, though, Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the Department of Justice Against His Critics, it is a hell of a read. Yeah, look, one of the things that really upset me the most is right after the plea, Lanny Davis went on every uh, television station with his PowerPoint presentation, for example, talking about the tax evasion case and showing, as a lawyer, not one single element of tax evasion applied to me. Not one. I don't have overseas bank accounts like Manafort. I never had an overseas nominee. I never had an overseas business. There was no overseas anything. There were no fake invoices and wire transfers, nothing. Every single dollar was sitting in Capital One Bank that was located at the base of the building I lived in. And in fact, I gave to my account, the CPA, every single bank statement that showed deposit. It was an error. It should have been a tax omission. But where they gave me 48 hours to plead guilty to a multitude of charges or they were filing an 80-page indictment that was going to include my wife. And I would never allow that to happen. And so I said to them, okay. Don't give away any more of your book. Okay, I apologize. It's called Revenge. You've got to read the book next. You've got to read it and hear the rest of the story about it. And I want to hear more about it. Michael Cohen, thank you so much. Nice to see you. Good to see you as well. Look, it's one of the most watched races heading into the midterms. And Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman well, he's answering a, lot of, answering a lot of questions about his health. We're going to go there next. Well, look, the midterms are less than a month away, and one of the most watched races is in Pennsylvania, where Democratic Senate nominee John Fetterman is battling Republican Dr. Mehmet Oz. 
Fetterman's health has hung over much of the race after he suffered a near-fatal stroke back in May. And the Oz campaign has been trying to raise questions about his fitness for office. Back with me, Nia Malika Henderson, David Axelrod, and Scott Jennings. What does your gut tell you about how this is playing? Why are you smiling like that, Scott? <laughs> oh, I didn't even ask. He's like, what, what, well, what said, was that well, you smile? Said that, you said the Oz campaign is trying. I mean, the way Fetterman's campaign handled this from the beginning, his race questions hmm. about his fitness for office. They were not truthful. He's barely been on the campaign trail. When he has been out there, it's been charitably really rough. And that's on top of the fact that this man's entire personal narrative is fabricated and he's far too liberal on issues like crime for the state of Pennsylvania. They've run a campaign about nothing and they've run a campaign without a candidate. I am not surprised. It is a tied race. And this thing coming up on October 25th, this debate is pivotal because he's going to have to finally prove whether he's up to this or not. What do you think? I think Scott has a strong point of view. Um, Look, I I think I think it was interesting. I watched him on NBC Mm -hmm. last night uh, and it was interesting to me first that he did the interview Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and he said something in the interview that I found really powerful, which was uh, I thought I and he had trouble saying the word empathetic, but he said, I I thought I had empathy. Mm. But now my empathy is a lot deeper because I, I have an even stronger sense for people who struggle. Who pe- for people who have uh, obstacles. I, th- I actually think that's pretty powerful, but Scott's right that this debate is going to be important. One of the reasons I think he did the interview was to sort of to, to explain in advance, you know, why he was using, why closed he's using captioning. closed captioning. He can't process uh, auditory communication well, yet they say he will uh, get over that, but he can't right now. And that's pretty inconvenient in a campaign. What do you think? Listen, Democrats have been worried about uh, his health, about how he would appear in public at this debate. I think in some ways, uh, some of their fears were a little eased by the NBC uh, interview that he had. I think his progress is a little bit better than some Democrats uh, thought it would be. But listen, it's going to be a tight race. You can see that it's tightening. Partly it's tightening because they're running ads in uh, Pennsylvania about crime and his record there. They're also trying to figure out uh, whether or not black voters Voters are going to show up for him. And Oz is trying to compete uh, for black voters, particularly uh, in Philadelphia. So this is going to be a tight, tight race. But, you know, the, the, the reason that the debate is important is twofold. It is, yes, he has to show that he can he can hack it. Uh, the second is he's going to have to confront the crime issue. He mm-hmm. was chairman of the parole board. Mm-hmm. They're attacking him for that. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and 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 there are there are counterattacks. Uh, there, there are responses and counterattacks. And the question is, can he manage that in this debate? It's going to be very important. I think people are going to be watching. He does have the lead. We should point out the, the people of the state have a they, there is a personal relationship with Fetterman. They don't have that with Oz because mm. he's not from Pennsylvania, which is a part big of the problem. issue. Look, we're going to talk more about this after a quick break. Everyone stay with me. We're going to be right back. With me, Nia Malika Henderson, David Axelrod, and Scott Jennings. See, what happened during the break is what really happens in the green room conversations, <laughs> which is what's the real conversation people are having? You know, we're talking about this interview. We're talking about what it might mean to voters. But there's been a really visceral reaction to what's been happening with the journalist. Yeah. And yeah. Nia, you pointed out that she asked a question mm-hmm. um, or, and made a statement, right. actually. Made a statement about 
The word was understanding. Can you tell us what it said? Listen, as a journalist, you never want to become part of a story, but this journalist, Dasha Burns, has become part of the story. As part of the interview and in talking to Lester Holt, she made a comment, which was, in small talk before the interview without captioning, it wasn't clear he, meaning Fetterman, was understanding our conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with that, lots of other journalists uh, who had interviewed Fetterman uh, unleashed on her and essentially made it seem like she was making us but every single one of them interviewed him as she did with closed captioning she just said what What he he has explained which is he has problems Mm -hmm. with auditory processing as a result of the stroke it's improving but it's not where it needs to be and that's why he uses this closed captioning what she said was totally appropriate she wasn't making an argument about whether he was fit mentally fit for office but it was the word understanding that that people are taking and i want to let's just have his own words because he says something about that he talks about why he used captioning here are his own words i use captioning so that's really the majoring uh that's the major uh challenge and every now and then i'll miss a word every now and then uh, or sometimes I'll maybe mush two words together. But uh, as soon as I have captioning, I'm able to understand exactly what's being asked. You have a problem with this, Scott, because you think this, I mean, in our conversations, you think that this does not bode well for a candidate. Well, I don't know yet. I mean, this is so unusual. I mean, uh, to do an interview like this is one thing. To do a debate, which I guess he's going to use this captioning system at the debate, is a totally different thing, which I don't have any experience. I don't know how it's going to go. Um, so I, I think they have constantly undersold this guy's health issues. His campaign, in my opinion, outright lied about it when it first happened. He was off the campaign trail. They won't release his medical records now. He clearly is having issues that was okay in that clip. If you've seen any of the clips of him trying to give speeches, it's really, really rough. And I think this reporter made a very clear uh, commentary about her observation of interviewing him. And, and what's crazy is just the number of other journalists and people on the left who have dogpiled her today. There is a national AP story about her tonight and the criticism that she's receiving. It's not right. She did her job and she made a fair observation. And it reminds me of what happened in 2020 when anyone would criticize Joe Biden about any confused story or weird thing. He said, oh, you know, he has a stuttering problem. It's the same thing. You can't just wipe it away. This guy has to answer some questions because it happened. And also because of the way his campaign, I think, has been dishonest about it heretofore. Is it the same thing? No, I don't think it's the same as the the Biden thing, because the guy had a stroke. I mean, I don't disagree with you. They should. You know, I I think they, they, they weren't as forthcoming as they should have been before. Uh, the primary. But he had a stroke. He's recovering. uh, And uh, he, you know, the test will be this debate. The test will be this debate. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then we'll see. He'll be there. His opponent will be there. He'll be he'll be answering questions. He'll be answering uh, charges. Presumably he'll be making some. And we'll see how he functions in that environment. The fact that it's adapted for his particular uh, uh, disability, which may be transient, Mm. Uh, to me, is there, there's nothing wrong with that. And I can actually, like I said at the beginning, there is something compelling about someone who's gone through a struggle, uh, st- uh, you know, standing in the United States Senate and speaking to the issues of the day. Uh, you know, so we'll see. We will see. And we've actually heard what you all think. I want to see what the audience has to say about this. Who is listening in? Tweet me your thoughts at the Laura Coase. We're going to get you into the conversation and get your take as well. Use the hashtag CNN sound off. Next, nearly a billion bucks with a B 
That's what Alex Jones was um, actually awarded by the jurors in the Sandy Hook case involving Sandy Hook families, eight of them, and one first responder. We'll take you there next. The amount was nearly $1 billion. That's how much a jury says that Alex Jones needs to pay to eight families of the Sandy Hook massacre and a first responder. Now, they sued the right-wing conspiracy theorist for lies that he told about the horrific 2012 school shooting, the one that killed 20 little children and six adults nearly 10 years ago. But Jones, well, he's now mocking the verdict. Maybe he thinks it's funny, claiming there ain't no money. Talk about it now with Maria Campo, Kirsten Powers, and David Urban. I got to tell you, the mere mention of his name and what has happened at Sandy Hook, you get the most visceral reaction from people collectively because it's just so disturbing. And yet, listen to this for a moment. Here's what he said after that jury award came down. It wasn't like he took it seriously. Listen to this. 57 million, 20 million, 50 million, 80 million, 100 million, blah, blah. You get a million, you get 100 million, you get a 50 million. Do these people actually think they're getting any money? I can keep them in court for years. I can appeal this stuff. We can stand up against this travesty, against the billions of dollars they want. So who is the they? Because it sounds like he was on trial, but he's trying to appeal to the, it's us against the families? You're shaking your head. Yeah, look, a guy's mendacious, despicable. I mean, think of a bad adjective to describe a human being. These are five and six-year-old kids that got murdered in cold blood that this guy's mocking. One of the parents who goes on television and, and weeps and, and gives an interview, pulls himself together an interview, Alex Jones goes on and says he's an actor. He, he makes fun of the guy. I mean, there's no, there's no lower form of life than somebody that goes on and does this. And then he turns it and says, oh, they're trying to come for your guns. This is all, you know, false flag put on by the U.S. government. It's despicable. There's no other word. This guy should be put out of business. Full stop. But why is he still in business? I mean, one thing I think about with Alex Jones is the fact that someone can go after him for that awarding of damages means that there was deep pockets to fit, to go into, number one. But is this a deterrent? Is this going to stop this idea of trafficking? And really capitalizing on the lies that have been told. What do you think? Well, Laura, he is raising money off of this right now. now. As we sit here, he is doing an emergency live broadcast to save InfoWars. And that's what he's been doing since the beginning. He's been using this to continue to stoke these flames. He has not taken this process seriously in any way. The families have begged him and begged him, and he doubled down and doubled down and doubled down. He refused to cooperate, released documents. He was held in contempt contempt of court. So when you think about what these families have been through because of him, the fact that they weren't able to grieve in peace, that some of them had to move multiple times to escape death threats and harassment they were shot at. One father committed suicide because he could not bear what he was going through. And this man continues to this very moment to double down on this. This is a disgusting human being. Listen to one of the parents who was very emotional about this very issue. Um, Just... It's just so emotional to hear. Here he is. The payoff for me was being able to take Emily's story back. Being able to, throughout all of this mess, remind people about who she was and what she meant to me and her mom and her sisters. And for me personally, getting my own story back. And um, so for me, the payoff was Alex Jones used the statement I gave years ago as a 
way to torture me and to profit from it. And he was forced to sit in the courtroom and listen to every word that I had to say that night. And I hadn't done that since that night. And I almost forgot what it was that I shared with the world. And I had to listen to that. Mm, Kirsten, when you hear that, what goes through your mind? I, I just can't understand what makes Alex Jones be Alex Jones, right? You just look at him and think, what kind of person would inflict this kind of pain? Like, you wouldn't inflict this pain on somebody that you hated, right? You wouldn't even do this to your worst enemy. And here he does it to these people who have had one of the worst things that can ever happen to you in your life happen, and then just, you know, pours gasoline on the fire and just, and just, that's it keep growing and growing and getting worse and worse and worse for them that this is just a person that um i just can't begin to understand and then to act like an aggrieved party when you're held accountable and to say they're never going to get the money and Mm. and and this kind of stuff yeah taunting people who it's it's sadistic right i mean he just loves to make them suffer even more than they've suffered and it helps him make money. That's the thing, that he actually has enriched himself off of pushing this. So there's a benefit to him, but he does seem to enjoy it. In fact, also. here's the principal's daughter on the point that you're raising, and both of you are talking about it in this moment. Listen to this. Money is all that Alex Jones cares about. And the only way to even begin to start to explain, I don't know, um, how he's made us feel is to, to hit him in the pocket. Um, it's the only thing that's going to prevent him from doing this to other families. It's the only shot that we ever have of him stopping the, the hate and the, the lies and the conspiracy that he's, he's thrown down on us for the last decade. Um, money is all that matters to him, and this was the only way to get a message across to him, in my opinion. David, take a step back for a second. And we're talking about Alex Jones, but it's also what Alex Jones symbolizes. And we're talking about the idea of being able to capitalize and profit off of exploitation and lies that you know to be false. That's the essence mm-hmm. of a defamation suit. The idea here that we've seen this in politics, too, though, we've seen the idea of people being able to capitalize, whether it means it's currency to get in office, currency to raise money in some respect, or somehow a rubbing of the elbows, is this going to be a signal to others more broadly who traffic in misinformation? Yeah, look, I, I don't know. This is so bad, right? This is, this, this is so different. So different because right, left, liberal, conservative, if you've got a kid, if you grew up with people, right, this hits differently, right? Mm. This hits differently. This isn't about Republicans or Democrats. This is about right and wrong. What he did is wrong. What these people are looking for is just peace. They want to they want to take this guy out because he shouldn't be able to do this to anybody else again. And, and the Sandy Hook families, right? Alex Jones is saying, oh, they're coming for your guns. The Sandy Hook promise, the organization these people put together, they really, when, when they started out, they had this uh, a principle, keep it, kiss, the kiss principle for guns. We're not going to take a position whether you should have guns or not, but if you have a gun, keep it locked up, keep it secure, you know, keep it out of the kid, people's hands that shouldn't have guns. They, they were not a right-wing or a left-wing organization coming to take your guns and snatch them away. But it was profitable to make it seem like they well, were. That's that's exactly, the well, that's exactly correct. And, and so, again, 
like it, it, it's the entire theme here is just is, it's mendacious. That's a word that, you know, you got to look up in the dictionary, but it really is like a very special word for a very special kind of evil mm. here. But you do also have to say, I mean, it's true that most Republicans are saying what he's saying, but you do have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's not a marginal person in the Republican Party, unfortunately, you know, who was acting like Alex Jones has been victimized, mm. right? So there's something bigger here, I think, than just the just Alex Jones. I think it does speak to something bigger. And the only way to keep people from doing this is to to just take all his money, to run him out of business. And, and I don't understand the legalities of how he has, like, brought his business into bankruptcy to avoid it. It's like he has a home, he has a car, he has whatever. Mm. Can't they just take away everything he has until he's paid a billion dollars? I mean, Can you take away the symbol? Well, but that's the problem, is that it speaks to the enduring power of these conspiracy theories. This may be an extreme case. I agree with you on that. But remember, he was forced to admit in court on the record that this shooting did take place. It was 100 percent real. These parents were not crisis actors. Those children existed. They lost their lives. And even after that admission, he then went right back to doing what he was doing. And he has people mm-hmm. who continue to send him money so that he can fly around in private jets. Yeah, I, I, so that, I think, is the enduring legacy of Infowars. I, I wish Alex Jones could sit down with these families across from a table and listen to them one by one and explain their story so they get to see him and he could feel their pain. You know, the the sick thing about it, I think he knows it, but the money was more enticing. And that's the moral compass we're talking about. Everyone stick around. There's a lot more to talk about here tonight. And I want to hear from you, too. What do you think about Alex Jones? Here's what Reggie is telling us. What Alex Jones did with spreading lies was so devastating that I do not think the jury could give an adequate dollar amount to repair the damage he's caused. Remember, Mr. Jones, words matter. All right, anything else you want to say? Tweet me at the Lara Coates. We'll be right back in just a moment because they say they were racially profiled by police. I'll tell you who and what it's about in a moment. Two black comedians are alleging racial profiling at Atlanta's airport. They said that they were randomly stopped on different occasions by police on the jet bridge and also questioned about drugs. This all happened not in the privacy of some area, but in front of other passengers, as if it made it better. Eric Andre and Clayton English are now suing Clayton County, Georgia, police. And the police, they're claiming, of course, against the officers that their constitutional rights were violated. Clayton County police officers came out of nowhere in, in like a, almost like an ambush style and started, um, sing, singled me out. Uh, I was the only person of color on the jet bridge at the time, all white people in front of me and behind me. They singled me out. They asked me if I was selling drugs, transporting drugs, what kind of drugs I have on me. And it was uh, clearly uh, racial profiling. I felt violated. Um, I felt cornered. I felt like I couldn't, you know, continue to get on the plane. I felt like I had to comply if I wanted everything to go smoothly. Mm. Eric Andre calls the experience humiliating and dehumanizing. And he joins me here tonight along with his attorney, Barry Friedman, who's a law professor at NYU and founding director of the NYU Policing Project. I'm glad to see you here. We know you from a very different world. And to see this happen in the Mm -hmm. intersection of what I think so many people experience. I mean, I joke around, you know, my father and my husband, I haven't been to the airport yet when they haven't been randomly selected right. for something. Right. 
That's a joke people can tell, but it really happened. Tell yeah. me about why that was such an experience. Well, it's happened to me a whole bunch, being like racially profiled at the airport and throughout my life. But this was uh, kind of the most egregious uh, instance that I've lived through. Um, I was coming home from a work trip. I was filming an HBO show in Charleston, South Carolina, connecting in the Atlanta airport to fly home to Los Angeles. And uh, I went to the jet bridge. I went to the gate, gave the gate agent my ticket, went into the jet bridge, and these two Clayton County uh, cops just came out of nowhere and started questioning me about, am I selling drugs? Am I buying drugs? Am I transporting drugs? And I was the only person of color in front of me and behind me on this narrow Were awkward... they in uniform? Did you even know that they were off? No, they were, in, they were like plain clothes. I can't remember if they had badges around them, but they were plain clothes. So that made it extra confusing. And I had already been through TSA. So I was like, is this another TSA screening? What is this? What do they want? And then I was like, oh, this is stop and frisk. This is like, they're just singling out black and brown people and asking them that they have drugs in the hope that they do have drugs so that they can, I don't know, arrest them. Or, But the whole experience was humiliating and embarrassing and, yeah, dehumanizing. And, you know. Everyone it, around you is watching. What were their expressions like? What were Everyone's you gawking at you like you're a perpetrator, like you're, a, you know, a, the, the bad guy. And I'm literally just flying home from a work trip. Is that why you felt you had to answer the questions or stop? Was there a part of you that said, yeah, didn't, oh, I'm getting on my flight? It, it, you're scared in those moments. It doesn't feel consensual at all. It feels like, okay, cops are stopping me. Uh, there must be something wrong. They think I'm doing something wrong. I have to prove. It's like you feel guilty until proven innocent. It's medieval. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was traumatizing. And um, as I was getting out of the situation, I told a couple friends who are lawyers, and they were like, you, you shouldn't put up with that. That's mm. messed up. And even when I landed in L.A. and got off the plane, there was a lawyer who was sitting near me in business class and watched the whole thing go down, and she came up to me afterwards, and she was like, you should report that. That mm. was not right what they did to you. So I started tweeting about it, and um, my friend, comedian Clayton English, reached out to me, and he said the same exact thing. In the same airport? At the same airport, same police department, same thing happened to him, except... He unloaded his whole bag. They looked all his stuff up, up and down. And, um, and now more people are coming forward. More black people and people of color are coming forward saying that they yeah. singled them out. And, and the statistics that Barry can talk about can tell I you that these there. random checks are not so random. They're pretty... I want to go there, but I also want to point out that the Clayton County Police Department has responded in some way to this statement. And yeah. it said that Mr. Andre, you, of course, chose to speak with investigators during the initial encounter. During the encounter, Mr. Andre voluntarily provided the investigators information as to his travel plans. Mr. Andre also voluntarily consented to a search of his luggage, but the investigators chose not to do so. That's, like, that's not true. So when two cops pop out of nowhere on a jet bridge that's like, what, five feet across? Not even. Um, you don't really feel like you have a choice to just go, no, I don't need to talk to you. If two cops kind of pin you in this awkward, claustrophobic corner, you talk to them. And then when they asked me specifically if they could search my bag, I asked the, it was clearly like a veteran cop training a rookie cop. Ooh. So I asked the veteran, I was like, do I have to say yes to the search? What did he say? And, and he went, no. And I was like, okay, well then no. And then they're like, all right. Mm, the way you say it almost as if they were, you had foiled some plan yeah. in some way. That's how you read that moment. I, you, know, yeah. you mentioned statistics. I want to get you in here, Barry, because the numbers I think people are, need to hear about 
I mean, you're talking about, I think it was the, the lawsuit cites that of the 378 stops, right, that were in this particular area, you said 50%, 56% of the people who were stopped were black, 68% were people of color. And a 2016 survey by Ipsos and Airlines for America shows that only 8% of air passengers are black. That is disproportionate to say the least. Is that the nature of why there is more evidence in your mind to bring this sort of case? Well, when we first, when I heard about this from Eric tweeting, the, the discrimination, we didn't even know about that. And what we realized was that the reason they say it was voluntary or he consented was because otherwise it's an unreasonable seizure. It violates the Fourth Amendment. You just can't pick people out who haven't done anything wrong. and, and, and Profile. Exactly. Interrupt their lives. They just want to get on the plane. But then we filed public records requests, and we asked for the data. And we got the data, and we couldn't believe it. So, you know, 8% of, of 378 should give you something like 30 black folks. And instead we get 211. So we ran the odds on that. We checked this with statisticians because I still have a hard time believing it. But it's far less than one in 100 trillion is the Mm. chance of this happening randomly. So they clearly were picking people of color and black people out of line. How do you, when you hear those numbers and think about that, does that add to it for you? Yeah, but I'm also not surprised Mm. because this is unfortunately the world we live in. You know what I mean? Where... We live in a, a white supremacy power structure, and uh, these people, uh, the Clayton County Police Department, are, I don't know, preying on black people to um, for money. It's just like a, sh- it's a shakedown. It's a the shakedown money element of it you're talking about, not just the search, but being able to seize different assets that they find on people. And you talked about the idea of if you didn't feel like you could walk away, the idea of being able to say, no, this whatever fi- whatever assets or money I have on me, you can't keep that either. You didn't feel like that was a moment you could do. Yeah, I don't know. I was so nervous and so confused. And I'd already been through TSA. So I was like, is this a second round of TSA? I've never experienced this. That I was just like in like fight or flight mode and wanted to get out of there. So the whole mm. thing was kind of like... Uh, cloud. I was disassociating. What do you think should happen? What do you, what has been the reaction people have had this happening to you? A lot of people are coming forward, like same exact thing happened to me. I'm black. I was on a jet bridge and not just in Atlanta at the Atlanta airport, but people are coming out at airports all over the country saying like, same exact thing. I was the only black person in line. People are, and these cops came out of nowhere on the jet bridge, pulled me out of a lineup and asked me about if I had drugs on me and all this stuff. So It's, they're horrible stories, but it's a good thing that you see how uh, now these people have a voice and a platform and they're, they're coming forward. And hopefully this will stop. Hopefully. Yeah. Why is this Clayton County versus TSA? Where people understand why? I mean, what is, the, what is the authority that law enforcement would have at a county level to come into the airport and do it? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, it, it just so happens that Atlanta Hartsfield Jackson is in Clayton County. And mm. so the Clayton County police have some jurisdiction there. Uh, and as Eric pointed out, what's really remarkable, if you think about it, is why would the police be doing enforcement on people who are leaving? Drug interdiction on people who are leaving the jurisdiction. It seems backwards. But as we learned, uh, what they're doing is they're actually seizing money from a lot of folks. Uh, they seized in the eight-month period that we looked at over a million dollars, even though they really only uh, found two people who had drugs. And so this was a scheme to get money. Uh, and the reason that the policing project that we're so concerned with this is that when you've got police that don't have rules or policies or anything to govern what they do. They have a lot of discretion. And when they have discretion, you get discrimination. I want to hear from someone in the Clayton County Police Department. I hope we can get someone on to talk about this as well and get the answers as to why and what the what is the process here? What is the reason this is happening? Especially if the numbers and figures you're talking about 
if that is the success rate, so to speak, I don't know why the program continues. It's not productive. And, of course, the constitutional values you're citing right now, really important. Thank you for coming on and telling yeah, your story. Yeah, thanks for having us. And what's going on. Appreciate it's really unfortunate it. to hear. Thank you so much. Well, look, up next, the panel's back. I'm talking about the January 6th panel. No, I'm talking about the panel in our actual segment here, everyone. And they're going to come back and talk about this case of alleged racial profiling and the greater issue of race and policing in this country. So you just heard about two black comedians filing a lawsuit over alleged racial profiling at the Atlanta airport. It's the latest salvo in the evolving conversation over race and policing more broadly in this country. Here with me, Mara Campo, Joey Jackson and David Urban. Joey, I got to go to the defense counsel to my left here. And I want to know what is your, I mean, tell me your defense chops here. What is your reaction? Is that overriding what you heard? Listen, my reaction is it's hard to defend, right? Mm. Yes, defense counsel, of course, I do it, I do it proudly. But you want to defend humanity. You want to defend law, what's proper, what's right, what's appropriate. And I think what's appropriate in understanding police have a job. Important part of that job is interdicting drugs and doing what Mm -hmm. they have to do. When you do it in a way that's discriminatory, that's targeted, that does not have a basis in fact, right? We deal in facts in our business, right? As the fabulous prosecutor that you were, right? It's about the evidence. It's about the proof. And when you're stopping people just because you happen to be African-American, and by the way, I think because of that, you have some background in drugs. It's wrong, shouldn't happen. And I thank goodness that they're using their great platform in writing this wrong. What do you think, David? Look, I mean... it's hard to argue with what Joey just said, right? That's because the eyes are mesmerized. He, he, listen, he's, he's a great, he's a great, he's a great <laughs> lawyer. He's a great lawyer. But let me just point out something here on the, when you're going to, when this is going to go to trial, when it's going to get kind of kept flushed out. A part of this, of, of the folks that stopped, um, about a million bucks was seized. This was, this was hit on in the story. About a million dollars was seized from 25 individuals. So if you break it down, it's about 40,000 bucks a person, right? It's people carrying $40,000. Now, of, the, of those 25 people, only eight petitioned Went, went and petitioned the court to get their money back. So what does that tell you about the other 17 people who left 40000 plus thousand bucks cash on the table I have the answer. but they didn't go back? I have the answer. I think the answer is people are tired of red tape. They're tired of the bureaucracy. Uh, and they're not going to fight. Look, the reality is... I is might that, fight for my $40,000. Joe, Joe, you may. You have to go the reality. prove that your money is not tied to any criminal yes. enterprises. Exactly. So your money is basically guilty until proven innocent, and that is not how the system Correct. is supposed to work. Correct. And the standard of proof is far different. You know, in criminal cases, you have a reasonable doubt beyond a reasonable doubt. When you're talking about issues of asset forfeiture, it's a probability, a preponderance. Is it likely that it was involved? People don't want to be bothered. People want to live their lives. People want to live in peace. People don't want police intrusion. But Joey, that, 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 that money is also 40, used to fund grand. things. That, that means the money, the after the forfeiture, goes someplace. Too. Of course. Goes to police. Goes, goes, to police. To police. goes back to the police. And, and I think police need to be resourced because they're doing a lot of good. And I won't dispute that. But what I don't believe is they should be resourced on the backs of people who are not engaged in any yes, wrongdoing. But, but all if they're engaged is, in wrongdoing. All I'm saying is if if you, if you have 40,000 bucks, I don't know where you come from. Where I come from, if you have 40,000 bucks, it's your money. 
You're going to fight for it. But that's if you, but that's lot, if right? you know that you're entitled to get it back. And I think that part yeah. of the problem that we have here are people understanding what their rights are, specifically when you're talking about an airport. Because even if you're someone who says, well, I know my rights, the police can't stop and search me for X, Y, Z. When we are at airports, we are trained to expect to be searched. We are trained to expect for TSA to take things away from us that we can't get back. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really unique environment where people have their guard down and they're probably more willing to subject themselves to these unreasonable searches. I've only only been present one time when somebody had cash seized. I was on the the law enforcement side of it. And they explained in great detail how this individual could get their money back. Gave them receipts, gave them the paperwork and said, here's what you got to do to get your money back if you'd like to get it back. But how do you how do you explain the statistics here? Because I mean, I know you cited the idea that the notion what you're saying in my mind is, look, all's well that ends well. No. They've cap- they've captured the money. So if unless it, it must have been for nefarious purposes, no, how do you I'm explain not, not the saying, stats no, here? I mean, no, look, look, no. look at the stats second. I mean, fifty six percent of the people stopped were black. Sixty eight percent of people of color. Only eight percent of the population is flying on that numbers. How do you well, explain well, so, that? So, so let's just take it back for a step. Eight percent at the Atlanta airport might be underrepresenting it. I'm not saying I don't know where where, where they're taking that snapshot. If it's in Chicago, whatever. So I don't know what the statistics are because we can bend statistics and make it work. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that the money seized was any evidence of anything other than it's a successful program. That's why they continue doing it. Right. They're seizing a million bucks. Twenty five people they took it from. Only eight asked for it back. They're going to keep doing it. Right. Until they don't do it anymore. Until they get forced not to do it. That's what. That's what I was saying. I'm not saying it's evidence yeah. of anything. Anything other than what it is. But the problem with that, I'm probably going there. The problem with that, in respects, is if it's successful in the allegation of they violated the Constitution to get that money, then they shouldn't do it. Yeah. That shouldn't be allowed to happen. And even it's incentivizing the chance of profiling to get that money. I think it incentivizes bad behavior. Look, there's a role, again, for police in what they do. I'm not going to target the police department. What I'm going to do is to speak out against a practice that has no place. In the event, Laura, some, someone's doing something which is inappropriate, unlawful, you have an indicia of criminality, as us lawyers like to talk about, mm-hmm. that's one thing. But to target, you know, Eric Andre, oh, he's African-American, he must be up to something nefarious, right? Clayton English, oh, what about him? I just think it's not proper. Let's use the law in a way it's intended and designed to be used to catch the bad guys, not to single and target out people who are not engaged in crime. I thought you make a great point, too, on this, uh, Mara, and the idea of the conditioning. Um, the idea of, because the, 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 I, I invite anyone from the Clayton County Police Department to come on the show and talk about this issue, because I think it's important to hear what they have to say and what, what, what justification they may provide. But the conditioning is more than just the airport. I mean, the idea of it being consensual and voluntary, that's the part that gives you pause of the, how genuine that would be. And taking place on the jet bridge as you're trying to board your flight. And I consider myself to be someone who really knows a lot about my rights. And I think in that circumstance, I would have stopped. I would have consented to that search. Mm. If something was taken away from me, I probably would have allowed it, thinking that this was an extension of TSA. And in fact, that's what we just heard here, is he said his first thought was, is this more TSA screening? So it's just a very confusing circumstance. And when you talk about the percentages that we're seeing, you know, you have to remember, you mentioned Atlanta. You don't know where these percentages are coming from. This didn't take place in Atlanta proper. It took place in the airport. So the population here is of people who are in transit. So I think that 8% is probably pretty accurate. And what's informing the conversation more broadly outside the airport is the interaction of what it means when you don't consent to police officers and don't consent in some way and feel as though 
even if you do, it's not going to end well. And he I mean, just the whole a lot of it. Joey, if someone comes with a badge and a gun. Right. And they're police officers and they say, hey, stop. What are you going to say? No, never mind. I'm going to keep going. It's unduly coercive. And you feel that you have no choice. That's a problem. Well, we'll, we'll talk more about they're, they're it. They're not fans, by the way. The movie, Bad Trip, Eric Andre's best work. I, I highly, I highly <laughs> He's suggest. He's been waiting to Listen, all I this time and mention it. everybody watches it. It's great. Go look at it on Netflix. There you go. A, a plug and a conversation, everyone. <laughs> Joey, thanks, Mara. David, stick around. We've got to talk about some racist comments that happened by an L.A. council member and some new fallout tonight. That's next. Well, L.A. City Council member Nuri Martinez resigned from her seat today. This is two days after stepping down from her post as president after the leaked audio revealed that she had made racist comments. Now, according to the L.A. Times, those comments coming in a conversation with Council Member S. Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon, as well as Los Angeles County Federation of Labor President Ron Herrera, who resigned from his post on Monday. I want to play for you a portion of that leaked audio, and as I said... I'm not gonna like it. And then there's this, this white guy with this little black kid who's misbehaved. Oh, Even I'm like a little white kid, which I was like, this kid is a beat down. Like, let me let me take him around the corner and then I'll bring him back. Hmm. And there's a lot more to that conversation. And in the wake of that, frankly, shocking video, that's only a portion of it, the White House said. President Biden believes that all the L.A. city council members who took part in that conversation should step down. Back with me, Mara S. Campo, Kirsten Powers and David Urban. You know, what is your reaction to this? I mean, we know the initial reaction that the comments highly problematic. But I do wonder what you make of the decision of the White House to weigh in on this issue in particular. What do you make of it? Well, you know, I think that what we're talking about here in terms of the other members who were on the call and who were silent, who didn't object to this, who didn't say anything, um, I think what the White House is speaking to is the fact that they still have not taken any action. Mm-hmm. Um, they have apologized. But beyond that, there hasn't been any meaningful action. And I think there is the question about whether these people deserve to hold elected office. I mean, you have to think about what was said on that call, where this woman not only refers to this black child by this terrible slur, calling him a monkey, but then says that she she wants to take him around the corner and beat him. And the other people on the call don't say anything to object to this. So there is a question about whether these people should hold elected office. And, and my view is that, no, they should not. I mean, there are protests happening about this very issue, trying to make sure that they did not hold office. Not all have resigned. But I want to play for you what Corinne Jean-Pierre had to say um, on the remarks that were made and, and what President Biden thought about it. The president is glad to see that one of the participants in that conversation has resigned, uh, but they all should. He believes that they all should resign. The language that was used and tolerated during that conversation was unacceptable, and it was appalling. Uh, They should all step down. Now, that was Tuesday, right, commenting on that. And then Nuri Martinez, Kirsten, has said to my constituents after resigning, to my constituents, serving you has been a privilege and one that I don't give up lightly. You are my neighbors, my friends, and the reason for this service. While I take the time to look inwards and reflect, I ask that you give me space and privacy on these issues. What do you What do you make of this? I, you know, I, I don't understand why they all didn't just resign immediately. 
So the fact that it, it took any time, you know, the stepping down and then the resigning and all of that, sometimes you, you screw up massively. And when you screw up this massively, you should just resign and you should say, take some time, get some therapy, talk to different people to get advice to figure out how you got to this point that you would speak about other people this way or that you would sit there and say nothing when other people were speaking this way. And, you know, go deal with your issues, basically. It, it's just bizarre to me that people think that they can do stuff like this and then just go on like nothing had happened. I mean, if, if I was on recorded saying stuff like this, I would ask someone to take me to the hospital to get a brain scan, you know, because I would be like, something is wrong with me. You know, the, the, it's just so inconceivable to talk this way that, that it's just bizarre that she was talking this way and that these other two people were sitting there acting like it was normal, right? You know, it's interesting about it is, you know, it, you, you think about some of the reaction that's come out, I think just collectively over time, has been these two arguments. I want your, your reaction to it. On the one hand, it's the re- resign. You don't deserve to have a chance to lead. You've asked to lead. You have, you know, foreclosed that opportunity. The other is... People believe in redemption, and I want to learn from something, and I want to learn in that moment, and I can grow from this, and I want to maintain my position. Then you've got the argument of, this is cancel culture yet again. You can't do anything wrong. Where do you stand? Listen, it's not cancel culture. I mean, this this is, she screwed up. You know, you for, she forfeited the right to be a leader in the government, right? And, and she, should have stepped, she should have stepped down, right? The, the, the whole city council should have stepped down, just like I think Governor Northam should have stepped down in Virginia, right? But we saw the wagons get circled around him, right? Northam because of the blackface. Yeah, because of the blackface. Either he was in blackface or he was on a hood. One of the two. I don't know which one he was. But, you know, everybody circled the wagons there and said, Oh, and they let the guy stay as governor. That's not true. He stayed as governor. Actually, most Democrats wanted him to resign. But he still voters, stayed as governor, but he, Kristen. But he chose to, and he and that's the point. And I think that look, I wrote. But where a book, was the human cry from the White House? Then I wrote a book on Ooh. grace. I believe in redemption, and I. But I think it's a really important thing to say that that doesn't mean that there's no accountability. So there can be accountability where people then go and they, like I said, they deal with their issues and they try to make things right. Part of part of that redemptive process is also them you know, repenting and repairing and making things better, fixing, you know, where they caused brokenness. So that's what should be happening. Holding people accountable is not canceling them. Is there room it's, for that redemption in politics still? Well, there's absolutely there room for room, that grace in politics. There's room for it, but there is a process that needs to take place. And we're far too early in this for, for that process to be complete. And I think there's also a bigger context here that is explaining part of the reason why people are so upset about this. You know, a lot of people are saying that the whole reason they were having this call was to talk about diluting black political power in Los Angeles. And so when you pair that with what was said on this call about this black child, you see why a lot of people are very, very upset about what took place and why they really feel that these three members, at least, have no place in leadership in Los Angeles. Yeah, I think I have a little more real politic view of politics, right? I I, I don't think there is. I, I mean, there may be room for grace, but not in the current political environment, right? This is you get scorched, you get burned. Maybe, you know, 10, 15 years later, you can come back. And and I didn't, by the way, and I'm all for grace. I'm all for asking for forgiveness. I believe in second acts. But, you know, you have to, part of the thing is admitting you're wrong, saying I did something wrong. And in the governor's case, he didn't step forward and say, look, I screwed up. I was a 20-year-old kid. I was an idiot. I did bad things. I find them, they were really offensive. I bet I hurt a lot of people. I'm sorry I shouldn't be the governor of a state that's so diverse like Virginia. Just just own it and then come back. You can't have redemption if you don't do that. And in his case, it didn't happen in this case. I'm glad to see Democrats stepping up and owning it. I got to tell you, it was it's fascinating that we were able to narrow down the mistakes of politicians to just two instances or five instances. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, I could give you a whole list of things to take up the entire studio here, but yeah. it's time for all of you to sound off here. Your tweets are coming up next, everyone. 
All right, time to hear your thoughts on tonight's hot topics. Here's what we have across social. One is on racial profiling is bad for a host of reasons, but from a law enforcement perspective, it is bad practice because it creates a blind spot. If you're only looking at people of color, then a white guy with a suitcase of cocaine can walk right past you. Another person mentions, I consider, it's on Fetterman, I consider myself middle of the road, common sense voter. John Fetterman having to use a closed caption for a debate is not a big deal to me. Watching him wasn't alarming, which I can't say about other candidates in the last few years. You're laughing. What are you thinking about that? Well, I just, I'm thinking of various people in the public sphere who speak in word salad constantly and no, and the same the current president. Yeah. And the same people (laughs) like Donald Trump, who if like, if you've ever interviewed him as I have, and you try to like read the transcript and there are no sentences, they're just, it's like run on all over the place. So does he have a cognitive problem? I mean, I never ran around saying he had cognitive problems, you know, so suddenly because this person who actually has a diagnosed reason for this, auditory processing issues, and we've been told that that's what it is, why is everybody acting like he is not capable of doing this job? I mean, it's ableism. I'm sorry. It is just straight up ableism. I think, I think a lot of the Fetterman stuff it's, has just been about his dishonesty with his health. He's not been honest for three days in Pennsylvania. He didn't tell the voters. He's an elected official. Didn't tell anybody he had a stroke. Wasn't completely honest with the Democrats, the governor. Not Nobody telling knew people something for three days is no, not being dishonest. It's completely it's being like dishonest. It's like getting all it the information. Dishon- it's no, getting and information and until they, you're able no, to tell people what's they going dripped, on. They dripped it and dripped it and dripped it out. He's not been, he hasn't been forthcoming. I worked for uh, a member who had cancer, heart attacks, many, many, many and bad things. And the minute they got the diagnosis, no, they, they ran outside we, we and did. gave we, it. We, I we did. We were very tra- I'm sure they just went straight from no, the we doctor's were, we were office very and had a press conference. Because, 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 I, I mean, no. this is ridiculous. Well, you call me a liar? It happened. You can Mark, go look at it. Arlen Mark, Specker. Mark, 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 there's a liar comment. We were just talking about grace. I would like to remind everyone. Mara, that is so true. to circle back to that. And as it applies to Fetterman, I think as it ties into what we were talking about with grace, I mean, here's someone who's just been through a very serious medical issue. And um, I, I don't think that it's unreasonable to extend a little bit of grace and, and accommodate um, what he says his needs are. I wonder if voters will do it in the ballot box, though. That's the question at the end of the day. We have another tweet out. It's that the fact that we are even debating, questioning the legitimacy and partisanship of the Supreme Court is yet another indication of how great the threat to democracy is in our nation. You guys didn't have a chance to weigh in on the issue of the Supreme Court and what's happening what do you make of it? Listen, people have been saying the Supreme Court's device since Mabry versus Madison, right? So let's not like, this isn't like brand new, right? I mean, there've been court packings and, you know, on and on and on. It's just, you know, same same story, different day. Well, See, it's, think, it's a little yeah. bit new. Go ahead. I do think it's different. I think in our, at least in our life lifetimes, right? It, the Supreme Court was that one institution. I feel like when I was growing up or even in my 20s and my 30s, you know, that you would look at it, my 40s, and and think, like, this is an institution that we can basically count on in a way that I wouldn't necessarily look at the other branches of government. And it does feel that this is something very different where it's starting to feel very partisan. I'm going to leave it here on an issue that doesn't seem to be as partisan. It seems to be a connective tissue about Alex Jones, and it ends here. I hope it sends a message that lies are hurtful and you will pay the price for spreading lies using the hashtag CNN Sound Off. Let's end it there, everyone. It's a, you know where to find all of us. You know where to find me here at the Lara Coates. I want to thank all of you for watching and giving us your take because it's important for you to be a part of the conversation. We don't want to talk around you. We want to talk with you. Thank you to our panelists for being a part of it today. And thank you for watching. Our coverage continues. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.